This is Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. In this episode, I want to talk about a specific scene in the life of Jesus' ministry. Uh, It's toward the end of his time with his disciples. It's actually uh, from John chapter 13, and we now call this the Last Supper. But Jesus and his disciples, they were used to traveling around and eating meals at different places as Jesus went from town to town preaching. So Jesus knew what was coming next, but for his disciples, they wouldn't have called this the Last Supper. They wouldn't have called it anything. They would have called it a regular uh, get-together. Now, they were at this time also celebrating Passover, so it would have been a significant event in that sense, but it wouldn't have been anything out of the ordinary for them to be out of town eating a meal and just enjoying each other's company as they were on the road because that was a normal thing that they did. And so in this particular instance, Scripture tells us that when Jesus and his disciples got to the place where they were going to eat this meal, there was no servant that greeted them at the door to wash their feet. And it's like you hear that and you go, okay, I mean, I don't really get why that's that big of a deal. I go out to restaurants and stuff and nobody checks to make sure we've washed our feet. Like that's just a, it's not a tradition that we use or we value or we understand. And so I did a little bit of digging into it. And once you understand what the setup was like, it will make a whole lot more sense. So if you think about the fact that Jesus and his disciples, they weren't traveling on paved roads or sidewalks or whatever. They were walking on dirt paths pretty much everywhere that they went from town to town. And as dirt gets walked over, dirt or sand or whatever gets walked over, over and over and over, it just gets packed down and it gets, you know, it starts to feel kind of road-like, but it's still dirt and it's still dusty. And if you're wearing those sandals that you picture people in the ancient world wearing with just kind of a slab of something on the bottom of your foot and then you tie it over on the top of your foot, there's a whole lot of foot exposed that's getting coated in dust. If it's best case scenario, if it's dry out and it's a nice day, you're getting dusty. But if it's rained at all, uh, you're walking through kind of soupy parts of this little pathway. And you also have to remember that you're sharing this path with animals that are transporting things from one place to another, or the animals themselves are being transported from one place to another. And these animals, as they do, they're just going to the bathroom wherever they're walking. And so that's something that you're running into as you're walking on this road. And so when Jesus and his disciples get to where they're going to eat this meal, their feet are really dirty. Uh, Best case scenario, their feet are covered in dust and sweat. Worst case scenario, it's mud and sweat and animal waste, and whatever else was laying out on the road. And so their feet are really dirty. 
But still, we're like, okay, that's not that significant. Like, I get why that would be a bit of an issue, but maybe not like a huge, huge issue. Well, they didn't sit at tables and chairs to eat meals the way that we do. Uh, Their tables would usually sit up off the ground, maybe four or five inches, something like that. And then instead of sitting upright next to your meal, next to your plate at this table, you would kind of recline. And so they would lay on their sides and sort of tuck their feet a little bit up under them and lean on one shoulder. And then the person next to you would lay right next to where you were laying and so on and so forth around the table. So what that does is I'm sitting within a few feet of somebody's feet that are filthy and dirty and nasty and smelly. And so is my food. And if my food is within a foot or so of somebody else who obviously needs to be cleaned up before they're going to come and sit at a table where we're serving food, then it's going to be a whole different problem. It's not going to be like, okay, I don't really get why this is a big deal. All of a sudden it's like, this is a big problem and we need to get these feet washed immediately. But the problem is um, the job of washing everybody's feet was the job that kind of the least important person. This was the lowest servant that existed. This was their job to wash people's feet. Because if you think about it, it's a grimy, dirty, nasty job and you're kind of invading somebody else's space as you're cleaning up their feet. And it's just, it's an uncomfortable thing. So it makes sense that it's the job that nobody wants to do. It's kind of the thing You know, I think of what it would be like for a modern day equivalent to that. And I think about the times when I stop, I'm traveling from one place to another on kind of a longer road trip. And I stop at a gas station or a McDonald's or something and run into the restroom. And after I wash my hands, think about how many times you've been in a public restroom like that and the paper towels are kind of just overflowing out of the trash can. You don't, I'm guessing, you don't go and pick up the paper towels that are on the ground and walk over and stuff them down into the trash can and go, okay, I want to make sure that we get this all taken care of. You kind of walk past that and go, man, that's gross. Glad it's not my job. Glad they're paying someone else to take care of that. And you just keep going on. Now, that job... I think is is kind of one of the best ways that we can imagine what it would have felt like to be the person that washed everybody's feet. It's a task that just by doing it, you're like, man, I, I really don't think that I'm too important to take care of something that obviously needs to be taken care of. And so... Jesus and his disciples sit down and they start their meal. And I think that it would have been uncomfortable and obvious to everybody that there was a problem 
that these dirty, nasty feet are inches away, feet away from my food that I'm trying to eat. And the smell and the sight of it is just, it's not a good thing. Somebody needs to take care of this. Now, here's where the tricky part comes in, because if any one of the disciples were to get up and wind up washing everyone else's feet, they're essentially saying, I think I'm less important than everybody else in this room. And so nobody was willing to make that statement. Nobody was willing to say, okay, I'm going to serve and I'm going to stop thinking about how I've got seniority. Well, I wasn't the last disciple that Jesus recruited. I've been traveling with him for a day longer than this guy over here. That's how we think. And nobody was willing to say, you know what, I'm going to just take care of this because it needs to be taken care of. And so scripture tells us um, that partway into the meal, Jesus gets up and he finds a bowl and he puts water in it. He finds a towel and he goes around one by one and he washes every single one of his disciples' feet. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and take away the fact that you may have heard this story over and over and over. Think about it for a second. Knowing the background that we just talked about, how it would have felt to be there in that room at that moment. I'm guessing that every one of those disciples was sitting there thinking, man, I, I should have washed everyone's feet. I can't believe that now Jesus is having to do it. I know I'm more important than a couple of these guys around the table, but what is going on that I should have stepped up? I should have done something. Or maybe some of them were kind of whispering across the table like, you know, John or Matthew or whoever, you should have been up and washing everyone's feet, man. Now you made Jesus do it trying to deflect the blame because those are kind of the two routes that we take when something uncomfortable is happening. We either wish we would have stepped up or we try to deflect the blame and put it on somebody else. And so Jesus, he goes around and he washes all of his disciples' feet. And like I said at the beginning, this is at the Last Supper. And I believe that part of the reason that Jesus did this in this moment, obviously he was taking care of a need, something that obviously needed to be handled. But I think that part of the reason he, he did it in this moment at the last supper is because he wanted this to be something that when his disciples thought back on their time with Jesus, he knows that shortly He's going to be arrested and tried and wrongfully sentenced and tortured and killed. And after all that happens, I think he wants his disciples to think back on what it was like to spend time with Jesus and remember that he got down on his hands and his knees and he washed every single one of their feet. But Jesus didn't stop there. He does this act of service, this act of love. 
And then afterwards, he does a little bit of teaching. And again, I think, you know, he knows that this is the last time he's going to be together with everybody and have an opportunity to talk about things. And I think that he chose his words very carefully in this moment to talk about something that he wanted to be fresh in their minds. And so in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another. Now, I want to stop there because that's not a new command. All the disciples, they would have grown up memorizing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Leviticus, there's a passage, I'm forgetting now if it's Leviticus 19.18 or 18.19, but it's one of those two that talks about loving your neighbor. And so they've got to be listening going, okay, a new command I give you, love one another. Well, Jesus, that's not new. But then he goes on and he explains it further in a way that makes it new. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And what Jesus does there is he takes the command to love your neighbor and he ramps it up significantly. Because these disciples, they had spent years with Jesus. And so when he says, I need you to love one another as I have loved you, they can think back on all the snapshots of moments where they saw the way that Jesus loved them. Where they can remember when they didn't get what Jesus was talking about and he could have become impatient as they tried to get him to explain it. Instead, he sat and he tried to help them understand. They can think back on the times where they were in kind of argument or dispute between a couple of them and Jesus stepped in and he didn't handle it in a way where he kind of trashes them for being so stupid or petty or whatever, but he steps in and teaches and he speaks the truth in love. And then they can remember something that happened just moments before. Jesus down on his hands and his knees washing their feet in an act of service and love. And so what Jesus is calling his disciples to is to love one another the way that he loved them. And I really believe that if we started to put that into practice in our lives, then the next part of this passage would come to life in a whole new way. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I want to talk about this idea for a minute because um, in Jesus' time, he wasn't the only traveling teacher You may have heard the word before. Uh, They called them rabbis. These rabbis would go from town to town and they would teach their understanding of who God was and what God wanted. And they would look at scripture and some of these rabbis, they would come up with 
um, kind of their own interpretation of a couple different things. And so if you were talking to somebody in your hometown and they had that specific interpretation, you would know, oh, okay, I bet you you learned that from this one traveling rabbi. Some of these traveling rabbis were really strict about a certain point in the law or a certain way that they dressed. So if you talk to somebody or you see somebody dressing like that, you're like, okay, you follow this rabbi. I get that. Jesus is saying, I don't want people to know that you follow me because you're really strict about one specific thing, because you wear a certain thing, because you have this one perspective on a certain point of who you believe God is. He said, I don't, I don't want people to be able to identify you by this external surface level stuff. He says, I want everyone to know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And I, I was thinking about how um, it's not just in Jesus' day that people would dress a certain way so you knew who they followed or they would you know, talk about a certain thing or be really strict about a certain thing. I started thinking about how often um, just by seeing someone's car or pulling up next to them at a stoplight, whether you see the bumper stickers that they've got, you know what college team they support, or you know what environmental thing is a big deal to them, or you know who they voted for in the last election, or you see those little flags hanging off cars sometimes, again, probably supporting a sports team or something like that, or you hear them cranking their music and they're trying to let everybody know, this is what I'm into. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any of that stuff. I'm not saying if you have one of those little fish on the back of your car, you should go rip it off right now. What Jesus is getting at, though, is that those things are in the big picture insignificant compared to the way that we treat one another. And so he's saying, I don't want people to know that you follow me because of a fish sticker or a bumper sticker with a Bible verse or because you're blasting worship music when people are stuck at a stoplight next to you. He said, I want people to know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And what Jesus was calling his disciples to at this moment in the Last Supper and what I believe he's calling us to today is to let people know that we're his followers by the way that we love people. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of love because it's something that's talked about so much and it's mentioned in so many different contexts that it almost lost some of its significance uh, because we hear love songs and we connect them with what someone that we were dating at one point in the past. We hear a song from 20 years ago and we think, oh yeah, I remember when me and whoever listened to this and yeah, we don't really like each other anymore. Um, that's kind of how we think about love, right? That it's something that you feel, it comes from 
who knows where. And then because I feel this certain way toward you, then I'm going to act in a loving way toward you. Um, but what I believe that Jesus is teaching here is that loving one another is a choice because Jesus didn't, I'm sure in that moment, he didn't feel like getting down on his hands and his knees and washing the feet of all those disciples. That's, that's never going to be something that you're like, I just, I get excited about the idea of doing that. He didn't get butterflies in his stomach when he thought about allowing himself to be murdered, going to the cross, being tortured, and dying. This wasn't something, I mean, if you remember, he was in the garden ahead of his arrest, and he was crying out and saying, God, if there's any other way, if there's any way to let this cup pass from me, um, let's, let's do it that way but your will be done. And so when we think of love, the way we hear it talked about, we think of it as that feeling thing of like, yeah, if I'm feeling loving toward you, then I'll choose to act loving toward you. But what Jesus, I believe, is calling us to is an, a deeper understanding of love that love is not based on feeling, that we can choose to act in love even if we're not getting those butterflies in our stomach in the moment. And I also want to talk about another thing um, that is a really big deal. It's really significant to me, and um, I believe that there are people that are listening right now who you're in the midst of uh, an abusive relationship, who you're with somebody and you've been with them for a while and at the beginning they didn't show you who they really were. They showed you who they wanted you to think they were and you fell in love and you grew attached to that person. And then when things turned sour, and things turned abusive, whether physically or emotionally or verbally or whatever, spiritually, whatever the case may be. And you hear this idea of Jesus saying to love one another, and you're going, okay, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm doing a good job. I'm staying in this abusive situation out of love. I want to let you know, um, that that's not love. If you're in a spot where you're experiencing um, abuse of some kind, there is help available. Um, in you know the in the area where I am, I know the specific places that I could point you to. But I'm guessing that no matter where you find yourself, there's going to be something near you, like a Center for Women in Transition or a county domestic violence unit or something like that. Uh, there's going to be a counseling office available somewhere that you can go and you can talk to somebody 
and you can get an outside perspective and hear that, okay, yeah, being abused, it's not normal. And staying in that environment and just allowing the abuse to continue to happen is not love. I want to share a passage for a moment from a book that a book that I started reading a little while ago. Um, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it was written by this guy. His name is Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And he wrote this book because he worked for decades with people suffering from PTSD, people who had been through significant trauma in their distant or recent past. And he found that a lot of times that stuff, uh, it wound up playing out not just in how they were doing mentally and emotionally, but it also had physical impacts on them. And so he studied how the body, like the title of the book, How the Body Keeps the Score, how after suffering trauma, you experience long-term negative physical symptoms. And I want to read a passage uh, from the beginning, the intro of this book. He writes, One does not have to be a combat soldier or visit a refugee camp in Syria or the Congo to encounter trauma. Trauma happens to us, our friends, our families, and our neighbors. Research by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has shown that one in five Americans was sexually molested as a child. One in four was beaten by a parent to the point of a mark being left on their body, and one in three couples engages in physical violence. A quarter of us grew up with alcoholic relatives, and one out of eight witnessed their mother being beaten or hit. Those statistics are really sobering. And I'm, I'm guessing that there's probably some people listening and uh, you're going, hey, you know, yeah, maybe that's true overall in America, but, you know, I'm from a small little town and n none of that kind of stuff happens in the area where I live. Um, I'd tell you that you'd be really surprised if you knew what was going on in homes, behind closed doors. There are a lot of people that are hurting, a lot of people that are being abused, and a lot of people who are being coerced to stay in those situations or to stay silent in those situations um, through twisting of this teaching or these ideas of Jesus to love each other. And if you think about um, how many people that represents who are victims of abuse, that leads to kind of the only logical conclusion that there are some people that are listening to this right now, that you heard this list of uh, statistics that I read through and you thought for a moment, yeah, I've, I've done that to somebody. Yeah, maybe I've done a couple of those to somebody else or to multiple somebodies. Um, I, I can't say it any more clearly than this. 
but you need to know that those things do not in any way line up with saying that you're a follower of Jesus. If you're hurting physically, sexually, emotionally, in whatever way, if you're abusing someone in your life, you need to know that that is the exact opposite of love. That is the exact opposite of what Jesus is calling us to as his followers. And if you heard, like I say, if you, if you heard this list and you go, yeah, I, I, 20 years ago or one week ago, I did that to somebody. Um, you need to hear in the clearest possible terms, stop, get help. Don't start or don't continue this cycle of abuse. We know that those who were abused in their past disproportionately grow up to abuse and they carry on this cycle of abuse. And, and I really want you to know that that does not line up with what Jesus teaches about love, what he's inviting us to instead of dulling the pain in our own life by taking out our anger and frustration and hostility on other people is to let him over time, it's not going to be a overnight kind of a thing, let him over time work with us to work through that pain. And for people who have experienced significant trauma and abuse and those kind of things in their past, that's going to probably need to be um, under the care of a really high-level professional. So a psychologist or a psychiatrist to talk to somebody and work through the things that maybe you've never worked through. It's not to say that oh, that's a total excuse and you're totally blameless for perpetuating that abuse on somebody else. But if you get at the root cause of where some of that anger and hurt and disillusionment is coming from, you're going to have the opportunity um, to heal a little bit. And what I hope is that no matter where you find yourself, if you're anywhere on that spectrum of, of, of abuse and you heard those statistics and you thought, yeah, I'm, I'm living in the midst of that or that's part of my past. Or if you were thinking, yeah, doing that to somebody has been part of my distant or recent past. I want you to understand that when Jesus talks about love, that kind of stuff doesn't fit in that category. Um, anyone who would abuse you that way is not acting in love. Any, anyone that you feel compelled to stay close to and allow to continue that abuse out of thinking you're following after what Jesus is saying, you need to get to a safe spot. You need to, like I say, get in touch with 
uh, Center for Women in Transition or your county domestic violence unit or talk to a counselor and they'll be able to point you in the direction of a place where you can get safe until there can be some kind of a resolution. And what Jesus teaches in this passage, to love one another the way that he loved us. Um, If you reach out for help, you're going to be giving the people around you the opportunity to practice that. And for those of us who are listening, who um, thankfully abuse either being abused or being an abuser is not part of our story. 